The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and find your way to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to set our thoughts this morning in context by simply reading the first seven verses. We're not starting the chapter over, by the way. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief is central and core to the Christian faith. Belief is actually the substance of faith. Faith means to believe certain things that are beyond sight, that are beyond sensory perceptions. But belief must be anchored in something. All this really comes to our view of Scripture, right? We believe that the Bible is inspired by God. We believe that it is inerrant in the original autographs and that we have a reliable copy of those original texts. And we believe that the Bible that we have is infallible, contains nothing questionable. All of that really believes uh, summarizes itself in this simple statement. We at Mission Road Bible Church believe that as the Bible speaks, God speaks. Every man and every woman must ultimately answer that question. What is our standard of authority? Where do we look to find the the end of our questions? Where do we look to find the source of our life? Where do we look to find the definition of what we believe and why we live the way we do? Well, as we've said, at Mission Road Bible Church, we believe that God has written his revelation in a book called The Bible of Himself, His View of the World, and it is the ultimate, it is the final authority that not only defines who God is, defines the gospel, but it is the final authority to which all of us will be held accountable one day. Now, I say all that to simply say this. Theology, which is a summary of what we believe about God and the things of God, theology matters. Let me say it again. Theology matters a lot. Theology is not something that should be delegated and relegated to the the ivory towers of theologians who talk about things that don't interest us. Theology matters every day. Theology matters every moment in every decision that we make. And every man and every woman is a perpetual, ongoing, relentless theologian. 
The way you think demonstrates what you believe about God. And the way you think about God manifests itself in what you think, in how you think, and in how you live. Show me your life, and I'll tell you what you believe about God. It's very simple. Every week, excuse me, every month, I get a publication. Publication irritates me. It's a publication that most of you are aware of. I got my offering of it this week. It's called Christianity Today. It is the self-crowned voice piece of what they would term American evangelicalism, American Christianity. Actually reaches around the world. I read a little bit in this this week, and I was... I was so infuriated, I could hardly sit still. First of all, let me just uh, read you a little bit of what I found this week in this month's CT, Christianity Today. There's a glowing review of um, The Shack by William Paul Young, which I can only say is the worst expression of heresy probably ever penned in our generation. It redefines God. It redefines the gospel. If you have read and appreciated the shack, please make an appointment to see me. It is damnable heresy, simply put. After a glowing review of it, it's in a Q&A, they asked the author of the shack this. What is salvation? What does Jesus accomplish on the cross in the resurrection? It's a good question. Here's what the author says. For me, that's the first, that's the first problem. That's the first problem for me. Um, It doesn't matter what it is to you. What does the Bible say? But let me keep on going. For me, salvation is fully accomplished in the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember that Satan always comes as an angel of light using our language with his dictionary. Sounds so good at first. He says, it was God in the hands of angry sinners. That's the phrase I would use. I am not a penal substitution guy. That's a very technical theological term that means a whole lot. He says, I am not a penal substitutionary guy, but I am a substitutionary guy, but I don't see the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son. I see the human race pouring out their wrath on the sun. Who's powerful in that statement? So I only see the hope, I see the only hope for the entire cosmos is what the sun chooses to accept, crawling upon the instrument of our greatest wrath. He met us at the deepest, darkest place. Still, that still gives every single person an eternal and ongoing right to reject this affection. Do you hear the sovereignty of man in this? But I don't think it changes the relentless affection, God's pursuit of his eternal nature, of me in his eternal nature. That's what Romans 8, 38, 39 is talking about. Read the list of things that cannot separate you from God's love, and you're going to run smack into this. Nothing can separate us. Harshly, right? Something can separate you from the love of God in Christ, and it's called heresy. It's called being a non-believer, Now, I'll read you that to to go on because that's on page 34. On page 
45, the editors have a, a column, The Future of Today's Christianity. This is the, 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 the leading sentence of the editor's article after nine pages ago saying that, affirming the fact that penal substitution, the gospel, is, is not that important. This is what they say. Christianity today stands squarely in the evangelical tradition of the faith. Can I read that again? Penal substitution earlier is not that important. Christianity today stands squarely in the evangelical tradition of the faith. That's on page 45. On page 51, there's an article by a gentleman entitled, Who Defines Doctrine? This is a sentence in that. Truth is eternal, but the language of truth, that is precisely what believers believe, how they summarize it, and what dimensions they emphasize, that changes. Did you hear that? What we believe changes. It has been rightly called Christianity astray, not Christianity today. So sad. Is that what we affirm? Is that what we believe? Everything we just considered in this most recent copy of CT is rejected in the first chapter of Romans. What we're going to do today is something that I haven't done before in my um, uh, preaching ministry, but I plan on doing uh, at least 16 times coming up in our study, and that's after every chapter of Romans to stop and look back and say, okay, what, what are the theological pillars that Paul has laid down on which we're supposed to put the roof of our faith? What's the theology that comes out of this great book? Every chapter is going to stack theological claim upon theological claim, building an impressive document, an impressive understanding of God, an impressive understanding of the gospel. It's going to help us define our theology. In fact, if you look at any theological book that you could read and look at the scripture references, note how many references there are to the book of Romans. So we finished chapter um, uh, one a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and then we had our Bible conference, and now we're going to come back and just take a high-altitude look. What, what theological premises come out of chapter one? We're going to look at a theological review of Romans chapter one. Now, let me just tell you, there's a lot here. If you want to try to take notes, you can. That's okay. But uh, I've talked to Kathy. We're going to make this little list available probably on the website this week just to simply uh, uh, summarize it. There's a lot here, and uh, I've only scratched the surface. We could get a ton out of every verse. But this is the high-altitude approach. What do we believe? If doctrine matters, and it does, doesn't it? Then what do we learn doctrinally from the book of Romans? We're going to learn so much from chapter 1, we're going to learn much in chapter 2, 3, 4, all the way through chapter 16. We're going to turn around and look at what we've just studied and said, what did we learn in the different categories of theology? Now, you'll know if you look at any theological text, we're studying this uh, on Wednesday mornings with our theology class, that theology is broken down into systematic categories, things under which you can line doctrinal truths so that you can organize them by answering the question, what does God think about and then you answer the question. 
What does he think about the church? What does he, th- what does he say about himself? What does he uh, say about his son? What does he say about the spirit? What does he say about the future? What does God say about, answer that, and you have a theological premise, a theological proposition. Well, looking at Romans, you have an enormous amount of theology in general, but in chapter 1, it is hard to underestimate, hard to, hard to overestimate, rather, how important the theological premise and primers are in this book. So let's look then, let's back it up and say, what theology do we learn from Romans chapter 1? And again, you're welcome to try to write this down, but we're going to move pretty fast through here in reviewing the chapter. Theological insights from the first chapter of Romans. The first thing we're going to look at categorically is theology proper. Theology proper is the study of God himself. What's the nature of God? What is he like? What does he say about himself? Uh, theology in general is the study of all that God says about all that he believes. Theology proper is the term theologians use to talk about God himself. Well, when you look at Romans chapter 1, there is so much said about God himself. Almost every verse we could, we could discern something, but it's important for us to look at God in the absolute statements about his nature and his character. Now, let me just pull a card over for a second. This is today more like theology class than a classic sermon. However, any sermonic ministry that doesn't include theology is really not worthy of biblical justification. Sometimes we have to become a classroom. I'm taking my preacher hat off today and putting on the, the, the theologian's cap, if I can, the teacher's cap. This is class. We have to look at what does God teach us about what he believes, what he thinks, what he proposes, and his propositions about theology himself. You would expect that the book of Romans would have a lot of this, wouldn't you? I mean, this is the great definition of the gospel from the Apostle Paul to a group of people in Rome who had very little understanding about the gospel, but who needed rigid and firm and deeply rooted definitions and authority for what they believed about Jesus being the Savior, the Lord, the Son of God. So let's look, first of all, at the theology proper in Romans chapter 1. The first thing we, we find is that God is omniscient. God is omniscient. Look at verse 9. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness. Stop right there. For Paul to say that God is his witness of what he thinks, says, preaches, where he goes, says something about God. God witnesses everyone's life. Do you understand that? There is no, Psalm 139, there is no dark place you can go, no dark place you can hide to run from his presence, from his penetrating omniscience and omnipresence. He is omniscient, all-knowing. He knows all. And that little reference that Paul says, God is my witness, he's not calling him in as like a court case. He's literally saying, God is witness to everything I do, everything I say, everything I know, everything I preach. So we learn that God is indeed all-knowing. That should be, that could be your greatest comfort or that could be your worst nightmare. If you're not protected by God's Son in the death, can I say it, in the penal substitutionary atonement of his own life for the lives of those who have believed, if you're not protected by that, God's omniscient, omnipresent, ever-glaring gaze should terrify you. But for the believer, 
we can look at those things that God sees and say he sees them and he's forgiven them. He sees me and he loves me still. There's grace and mercy. We woke up this morning to new mercies and the response to that, Jeremiah said, is great is your faithfulness. God's omniscient. We learn that about God. What else do we learn about God? Well, if you keep going into verse 10, you find out that God's will directs our ways in ministry. God has a will, an intentionality that works itself out into the lives of people, especially those who believe. He says, for God, whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel is my witness, how unceasingly I make mention of you. Verse 10, always making mention of you in my prayers, my requests, if perhaps at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Paul recognizes that God directs our ways. Man is not sovereign. We think we're sovereign. This fellow who wrote the shack thinks he's sovereign. These editors who think that they can say that, that man can dictate what he believes based on the language changes as culture progresses. Man's not sovereign. What's your view of God? Is God sitting in heaven just kind of conversing with the angels and the saints now in glory saying, I don't know what's going to happen next. What are they going to do? Wow, did you see what that king said, what that president said? Have you seen Congress? What, what will we do? Is that God's perspective? Read Psalm 2. He laughs. He says, you think you're in charge? That's on the macro level. Paul's saying on the micro level, they directs his way. That's encouraging. You can rest assured that God is in direct involvement in a loving, caring way in your life and in your ministry. No footnote to that. If you read Acts chapter 20, you'll find out that part of the direction of Paul by God was this. Everywhere you go, you're going to be persecuted, be beat up, and even left for dead. But that was the direction of God. You never need to wake up and say, oh, man, did, was God asleep last night? Was he over dealing with Iraq and Iran? Was he in the Middle East last night? Because my life's falling apart. He is directly involved in each of our lives. You go on to verse 18, we find out God is justly angry with sinful mankind. Contra what the author of the shack says, God is angry, rightfully and justly and fiercely so at mankind. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. How can a man then rightly say, God's not angry with man? That's tantamount to saying, I don't believe the Bible is true. God is rightfully and furiously angry with sinful man. If you keep on reading, you can find out there's some reasons for that. Because they reject natural revelation. We'll come back to that in a moment. Because they reject truth. Because they rationalize their foolishness as wisdom. And because they turn their passions into religious idolatry. It's all spelled out. And we'll get to that when we look at the doctrine of man in a moment. God is justly and rightly angry at mankind. If God is not angry at mankind, if God is not angry at you, can I say this? You have no need of the gospel. Saved from what? Oh, we can talk about what we're saved from. We're saved from sin, yes. Eventually, in our resurrected state, entirely redeemed from sin. 
Are we saved from Satan? Yeah. Saved from ourselves? Yes. Ultimately, though, being saved means you're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from God. And then probably the, the most frightening, penetrating part of theology proper is also listed in Romans 1. God has limits to his grace and mercy. God has limits to his grace and mercy. Three times in the text, in verse 24, in verse 26, (coughs) and in verse 28, he says, because of the pursuit of sin, finally God gives sinners over to the pursuit of sin. He turns them over to their own desires. God gave them over. Again, Rick, are you trying to scare us? Yes, I'm trying to scare you. If you don't know Christ and you're pursuing your sin, if you're justifying your sin, if you're rationalizing your sin, if you're trying to redefine your sin, know this, that every moment you stay in that state, God could easily say, is that, is that, is that what you want? Is, is that really what you want? You can have it. Only his gracious, kind mercy holds us back from pursuing our sin to the fullest in our unredeemed state because Believers, 1 Corinthians 11 says, believers who stay in sin, God judges them and may even take their life and say, that's enough, just come home. 1 John says there's a sin unto death. There's a sin uh, that, that you, can, you can violate God's grace and God says, that's it, come home. The most frightening reality that I, that I can imagine is a person who says they're a Christian but experiences no discipline from God in their life over sin. What does Hebrews 12 tell us? If if God is like a father, and he is, and a father disciplines his son for, for disobedience, and he does, how much more so God with his children will do the same? The greatest, I want to tell you, the, the greatest assurance of my own salvation, I can't get away with anything. I get caught at everything. I get confronted. That's God's grace when you're confronted because he disciplines those he loves. But there are limits. God will eventually give a person over to the degrading passions of their sin. How do you know if he's given you over? If you're alive, there's an opportunity to believe. That final giving over happens in death. Let's change categories. Let's look at now what is said about Christology, the son of God. The son of God. The doctrine of Christ. Much is said about the doctrine of Christ in Romans chapter 1. First of all, we see in verse 2, Jesus came as the fulfillment of prophecy concerning his son who was born of as a descendant of David according to the flesh. He came because the Old Testament promised he would come and he would be the person who could only be identified as Jesus of Nazareth. There are too many uh, 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 specific prophecies about this man for it to be anyone else except Jesus of Nazareth. Though the Jews still wait for their Messiah, it is statistically impossible that Jesus of Nazareth was not that Messiah the Old Testament prophesied. We also find out in verse 4 that Jesus' resurrection declared him as God's son. Jesus' resurrection declared he is the son of God. That's what it says in verse 4. God declared him my son. It doesn't mean that he wasn't his son until then. It just means he used the resurrection to prove it, to announce it. 
We also find this word happening over and over, and you see it in verse 4, that Jesus is the Messiah and he's Lord. He's the one who is the Christ, that's the Old Testament Messiah, that's the, the prophet who would come and redeem Israel and all who would believe. And he's also, last phrase in verse 4, Jesus our Lord, kurios, the master. You don't accept Jesus as your savior and then he becomes your Lord. You receive Jesus and submit to him as Lord, and then he becomes your Savior. Don't mix those up. We also find in verse 5 that Jesus is God's means of grace, the object of faith, and the message of missions. All in the simple phraseology of verse 5, through whom we've received grace, apostleship, uh, being brought about the obedience of faith uh, among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. He's the means of God's grace. He's also the object of faith. He's the one you believe to become a Christian, to be saved. And he is the actual message. Don't miss the connection between who Jesus is and the good news that we call the gospel. Which leads us to the third theological category, soteriology. Big word for salvation. What does Romans 1 teach us about salvation, about soteriology? Well, very clearly in verses 1 and 3, when you connect the sentence and take out the parenthetical uh, attribution of Jesus being uh, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in verse 2, here's the way what you read. Set apart, verse 1, at the end of verse 1, Paul set apart for the gospel, the good news of God. In the parentheses in verse 2, verse 3, the gospel of God concerning his son. Do you see that? The good news of God is Christ. It's not just a way to be saved. It's not impersonal. The good news is God became a man and God sent his son. That's good news. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send a plan. He didn't send an airplane. He sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We don't even present the plan of salvation until we present the person of salvation, the gospel of God concerning his son. That's the good news. What else do we learn about salvation in Romans 1? Well, the gospel adorns a Christian's reputation, verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Wow. Your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Your reputation in Rome is that you have faith in Christ in a very difficult place under which you're going to be persecuted. And in a few years, it's going to be a capital punishment to even be a Christian. Their reputation was that they believe the gospel. Is that ours as a church? Is that ours as individuals? The gospel adorns a Christian's reputation. A Christian should be first and foremost known as a Christian. Right? Oh, you can play football. You can be a good businessman. You can do whatever you think in, your, in an excellent way. But that ought to be secondary to the fact that you believe in the Son of God who was raised from the dead, who died a penal substitutionary death for your sins. That's our reputation. That's the reputation of a Christian. He's not a part of our life. He's the point of our lives. That's what Paul is saying. That's what you're known for. 
What are we known for? What's our reputation? What else do we learn about salvation? In verses 16 and 14 and 16, we learn that salvation is offered to anyone who will believe. I love this. I'm under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and the foolish. This is not just a Jewish thing. We're going to find that out in chapter 2, by the way. It's not just a Jewish thing. You don't have to have to show your Jewish card to get the gospel. Anyone, down in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who does what? Who? Everyone. What's the means? Faith. Believes. Salvation is offered to anyone who will believe. What else do we learn about the gospel? The gospel is the power of God displayed. Do you know this in verse 16? It's the power of God for salvation. The good news of God about his son, his life, his death, his resurrection, the theology that undergirds all of that. It's God's power displayed. It's greater than any power ever harnessed on earth and is the greatest power of heaven displayed to us. There is nothing greater than to see a dead man spiritually come alive by faith. And then lastly, the gospel reveals God's righteousness in, by, and through faith. This is all reviews, so we're not going to get into all the nuances of this, but the, God, the righteousness of God is what we need most. Verse 17 says the righteousness of God comes in the gospel and is received by faith. We need perfection to go to heaven. It's an awesome thing to think about, isn't it? God will not receive better people than other people. There's no learning, there's no grading curve. The only way to come to God is to be perfect. That disqualifies everyone except one, Christ. And the gospel is God's, when 2 Corinthians 5 explains this, it's, it's so profound. The righteousness of God in Christ is, the theological word is imputed, transferred, given to us put in our ledger, and our sin is taken from us and put on Christ at the cross. You know what that is? That's good news. Because you can never do enough, try hard enough, be better in any way enough to please God. It's all because of the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, fourthly, we come to anthropology, which is the same study as Hamartiology, which is the Greek word for sin. The anthropology is the study of the doctrine of man. Hamartiology is the study and the doctrine of sin. Those go hand in glove. It's impossible to study the doctrine of man without a thorough study of the doctrine of sin. And those come together in this, um, in, in, in this section of Romans. And you might be interested to know that more, <coughs> more is said about the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin in Romans 1 than any other theological category. That's significant because of what is going to happen in the rest of the book. He's painting a very black backdrop so that the gospel shines brightest against it. It's significant in looking at the rest of the flow of the book. What do we learn about the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin? Well, first, in verse 19, men have a God-given intuition about his existence and nature. God doesn't believe in atheists because atheists 
don't exist until after they willingly and forcefully suppress the knowledge of God that he gives them. Verse 19. That which is known about God is evident where? Where's it evident? Within them, for God made it evident to them. Oh, you can have an argument with your agnostic and your atheistic friends all day. Can I just say it as gently and as graciously as I can? They are lying. They're lying. Everyone knows that God exists. It's just what they transfer with that knowledge for their worship. And that's exactly what he goes on to talk about. Men have a God-given intuition and instinct about his existence and his nature, that he's good and that they're accountable. Secondly, men have no excuse for unbelief because of God's natural revelation. He goes on in verse 20 to say this, for, talking about that intuition, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood. How? How do, we, how, do, how do we figure this out, God? Through that which has been made so that they are at without excuse. You cannot look at this world and say, what a wonderful evolutionary conclusion. Unless you deny God. You erase him as strongly as you can out of your conscience. It's foolish. It is utter foolishness to reject the creator and the creation, the creator of the creation. And as simple as this, we, we, we talked about this. No one walks along the beach, finds a computer and says, wow, given enough time and enough evolutionary forces, this would happen. Now, maybe you would do that with a PC, but you certainly wouldn't do that with a Mac, Okay. No one looks at the human eye and says, wow, given enough DNA changes and enough responses to the environment, we could see the reflection and refraction happen with the image on an eye turned upside down, sent through an optic nerve, sent through brain synapses with chemicals and norepinephrine and serotonin firing back and forth between neurosensors so that images are made in our mind. Given enough evolutionary time, I mean, anything's possible. It's foolish. It's utter foolishness. Now, I have to ask the question and answer it real quick. What about the excuse <coughs> that could be made by people who say, yeah, but they're, they never heard the gospel? They never heard the gospel. This is the question that everyone raises in Romans 1. What about the, the guy in the jungle who's never heard the gospel? Well, how do we answer that? And there is an answer, but it's not an easy answer. And the answer is conditioned by our starting point. Our, our starting point as humans is wanting to give everybody a chance and everyone an excuse. So we start out by saying everyone should be on a, on a, on a, 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 a fair um, playing field with you know, zero, zero on the count in the batter's box. We should just start from there. That's not how it is. We're born with not two strikes. We're born with three. We're born dead, Ephesians 1 says. Ephesians 2 says. The starting point is every man is condemned 
And here's the point. Creation and internal intuition about God's existence is enough to condemn a man and every man, but it's not enough to save a man or any man. We could ask all day, why has God not given the gospel to every human mind? And the answer to that is, let's try to do that through missions and evangelism. But the other side is, we don't know. The bigger question is, why in the world were you and I born in the place we were and heard the gospel from someone? When we get to Romans 9, 10 and 11, this question is going to be asked in a very penetrating way. And the answer is going to be from God, who are you to ask me that question? Who are you to even ask that question? Have I not made all these things? Instead of asking all the hard questions, we should answer the hardest question. Why in the world would God save us? That's what the meditation of your heart should be. I don't know why he gave us this opportunity except his grace and mercy. He's kind to who he'll be kind to. That's the answer in Romans 9, reflecting the answer in Exodus 33. The starting point is all have sinned, worthy of death and judgment. All are guilty of pursuing, uh, of receiving God's punishment. And all will pursue sin into which they will be turned over unless God intercedes. Look, I don't have a big answer on why God didn't send the, um, everyone the gospel in Papua New Guinea. I know there are missionaries there. I don't have an answer either on why I was born where I was and grew up hearing Bible stories in the gospel. We're going to have to hold that intention until we get to Romans chapter 9. And then even there, you're going to get an answer, but you might not like it. What else do we learn about anthropology? Men reject God and his truth to accept their vain and foolish speculations. Verse 21 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. They just invent stuff, invent creation myth, invent evolution, invent anything they can to get God out of their minds so they're not accountable and judged. Later it says they're actually inventors of evil. Next, men are self-deceived fools. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they become Fools, they speculate, I missed that in verse 21, they speculate in verse 21 and they become fools, declared fools in verse 22. They just deceive themselves to say, oh, this is right. Look, the second any secularist starts telling you how his science proves his worldview and his life and you're silly for believing that book, just pray for him because his worldview has nothing at his heart except amoebas and chemical responses inside of cells. Men are self-deceived fools. I told you at the very beginning of Romans, if you don't like being called things, this is probably not going to be the study for you. What else? Men exchange God's incorruptible glory for the corruptible, for corruptible idols. Verse 23, they exchange the glory of God for idols. Now, it's not just idols like Buddha and like little cows. It's idols that, that give us affectionate targets. See what do you mean by that? Targets for our affection. Idolatry is the exchange of faith, exchanging faith for sight. 
We're supposed to exchange sight for faith. Idolatry, just the opposite, does, does, does just the opposite. It exchanges faith for sight because it wants something tangible for its affections, something immediate. Let's keep going. What else about men? Men exchange God's truth for lies in idolatry. It's not just the idols that are the problem. It's the lies about them. That this will somehow bring us satisfaction and direction. Verses 26 and 27. Homosexuality is a sinful abomination and judgment of God. There, I said it. So did Paul. I read again of a, a pastor who was in trouble this week for saying that. I read, read of a, this week of a very prominent um, sports figure who refused to go speak at a church because that pastor had made a statement that homosexuality is sin and he didn't want to get embroiled in the controversy. Did you read that? Really? I mean... <laughs> Are we afraid to say what God has said? If you do, 1 Corinthians 1 says, you're going to be counted as a fool, stupid, backwards. Homosexuality is a sin. Can I say it as clearly as I can? It is an abominable sin. 1 Corinthians 6 says, it is a lifestyle and a sin and choices from which people can be saved and a sin for which people will be punished in hell. The gospel can save homosexuals. And by the way, that's just listed as one sin among a whole list that comes at the end of this chapter. Also, men explore and express a full spectrum of sin. Remember verses 28 to 31 talks about they pursued things which are not proper. Given an opportunity to sin, man will use his greatest creativity. And then that all climaxes in verse 32. Men climax their depravity in the approval of sin and sinners. It's not enough just to enjoy sin. People want to approve the sin of others. Why? So they are now justified and given credibility in the pursuit of their own sin. That's why. Sin loves company. Can I say this too, though? So does righteousness. That's why we have the church. More is said, as I said, about the doctrine of man and sin in Romans 1 than any other theological category. That should be informative and instructive to us as this is the foundation for the greatness of the gospel in the next 15 chapters. You got to know how bad it is before you know how great it is to be saved from how bad it is. And that's where he begins. Fifthly, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. This is our last category. What does this chapter teach us about the church? Actually, more than you might think. It teaches us first in verse 11 that spiritual gifts are for the mutual benefit and encouragement of other believers' faith. Paul says, I want to come to, in verse 11, to impart some spiritual gift. I want to be encouraged by you. I want what God has given us and how he's made us and who he's made us to be and what he's gifted us to do and how we interact with one another. I want that to be a source of mutual stimulation and mutual encouragement. Here's what Paul's saying. I want to go to church so bad, I want to get all the way to Rome to go there. Let that wake you up next Sunday morning when you think, ah, it's a late night, I just don't want to go to church. Paul says, I can't wait to get there to be encouraged and to encourage you by spiritual giftedness. Church is not a spectator sport. It's 
intended for ultimate and intense involvement of lives on lives. Spiritual gifts are for the mutual benefit and encouragement of other believers. And then the last thing under ecclesiology is missionary outreach and evangelism are the, watch this, the natural expected consequence of believing the gospel. Verse 14. I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and to the foolish. He says, I'm under obligation. Now, is Paul under obligation so that he kind of droned into every town talking and acting like Eeyore? Well, I don't know if you want to hear the gospel today, but that's what Jonah did. Remember? Jonah goes to the Assyrians, "Uh, I don't suppose you want to hear about the good news of God, do you? And a half a million people are converted. He's so mad about it, he goes and sits up on a hill and pouts. Don't, Don't be like Jonah. Missionary outreach is our response. Evangelism is our response. Why? Because we believe in verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation. R.C. Sproul said, I'll never forget when he said it. I know where I was sitting. I know he's written it, but I'll never forget where I was sitting in a, in a sermon when he said it. He said, if we really think about and believe in the doctrine of hell We will go mad and crazy or we will run from this building and beg every man we see to repent and believe the gospel. Do we believe in hell? Do you believe that the wrath of God is real? Unlike this author who doesn't believe that God's really angry at us. Then why be saved? What's the point? We believe in the realities of heaven and hell. That's a game changer in all our relationships, in all our conversations. But here's the problem, and here's the apex of the chapter. We still come to recognizing that and believing that and wanting to do something about that. But in the moment, we're talking to our friends, we're talking to our family, we're across the the counter at the 7-Eleven, we're talking to the guy across who's pumping his gas. In that moment, we're a little bit afraid and uncomfortable, which is the equivalent biblically of verse 16. We're ashamed. Just ashamed. And Paul says, time out, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Who of us can stand up and announce they have never had any reservation nor any shame in sharing the gospel? I'll give you the rest of the afternoon to stand and none of us will. How do we change that? The theology of this chapter. If we believe these realities, it changes our affections and it changes our motivations and makes us think differently about God, more accurately, differently about ourselves, more accurately, and differently about the people with whom we interact because we have a more accurate view of their eternal destination based on whether or not they believe the gospel. There's some heavy stuff here in Romans 1. 
And I think we could have probably gone for another couple hours talking about these things or even adding others. But note this. Theology matters. It matters so much. What do you believe and why do you believe it? And does though that belief system control you and compel you or not? Listen, it should matter in our marriages. It should matter in our raising of our kids. It should matter in our, our interactions with, with, with the people at work. It should matter in every nuance of life. There is no part that is outside the spotlight of our affections for Christ and the gospel. No part of our lives. There's not the secular and the sacred part of our life. It's all sacred. It's all, all, all under the power and jurisdiction of our God. You say, what right does he have to to dictate all that? He died for you. That's what right he has. What does 1 Corinthians 6 say? You have been, what's the word? Bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body, your soul, everything you are. There's heavy stuff here in Romans 1, and this is just the first chapter. We have 15 more to go. Let this encourage you. There's some negative stuff in here, but the positive in here is that God redeems us from the negative, that we can be saved from a wrathful God, and he looks at us with favor and with mercy and with a smile. If you know Christ today, tell someone about it. Talk to each other about what is amazing about grace. And listen, if you don't, in a few minutes our prayer room is going to be open to my right, you need to run. Don't walk. Run over there and say, what must I do to be saved from this righteous God who demands perfection that I don't know? Would you bow for a moment and... Just reflect briefly and yet deeply on what God has done for you in Christ. How amazing his grace is. And how unbelievably, indescribably special it is that you've heard the gospel. and ask God for the grace to turn that recognition into greater evangelistic effort to do the same for someone else. We're humbled, Father. Humbled by this theology. This is what we believe because as your word has spoken, you have spoken. Tenderize our hearts and tune our souls to sing your praise. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.